Okay, good morning everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz. We are in the topic of predestination and will be for today and perhaps next week as well on our way to good works and new obedience, which is sure to be an enlightening section as well. We'll pick up at question 182 on page 90. But before we do that, let's open with invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, in summary up to this point, viewed from various angles, the doctrine of predestination or election as taught in the scriptures can be a difficult doctrine to say the least. It can be confounding. And in fact, when viewed from those angles, that's by design. Viewed from other angles, it's a profoundly comforting doctrine, and that's the majority position of the scriptures, a presentation of the doctrine of election such that it is meant for our comfort. It is gospel for the church, gospel specific to Christians. All right, with that brief summary of what's gone before, let's pick up at 182. But since it is certain that only those who are predestined or elected are saved, and those whose names have been written in the book of life, how then can it be known who the elect are? Or how can I be sure that I am in the number of those that are predestined and that my name is found written in the book of life? Regarding this question, one must judge not on the basis of the judgment of our reason, nor on the basis of the statement of the divine law, nor by any outward appearance whatever, and much less should we take recourse to this, that we look for the answer by peering into the secrets of the hidden counsel of the Trinity. But we must look to the word of the gospel, in which God has revealed to us his counsel and will, in Christ. For Scripture leads and sends us back to it in this question. A reference is given to Ephesians 1 9 and 2 Timothy 1 9 through 10. But that hidden counsel of God is revealed to us in this way, Romans 8 29 through 30, those whom God has foreknown, predestined, elected, and preordained according to his purpose before the foundation of the world, those he also called in time, and those whom he wants to be guests at the marriage of his son, those same ones he also calls through servants sent out by him. Matthew 22, 3, referring to Jesus' parable. Namely, each one at his time, one at the first hour, another at the third, the sixth, the ninth, or even at the eleventh hour, Matthew 21 through 7, a different parable of Jesus. And truly God, who thus calls men through the word, earnestly wants them to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2, 4. Likewise, he wants to be effective in them through the word so that they be illumined, converted, justified, and saved. For let us not think that the call of God is child's play or a joke or something like that, but let us firmly believe that God truly wants to reveal his will to us through it. And what the will of God toward us is, is to be learned and judged on no other basis than alone from the word God. Of the call. And that word by which we are called is truly the ministry of the Spirit 
and the very power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. And this is the highest and necessary comfort for pious minds and troubled consciences, that I can, in fact, I should, firmly and confidently believe and hold fast that God, who calls me by the word, by that very fact, makes his will known and revealed to me, that he wants to save me, that is, confer the Spirit and his grace on me through the word, that I might be enlightened, converted, justified, and saved. In this way, such a description of the elect can be drawn out of Ephesians 1. They that have been predestinated and elected to salvation and life, uh, and life eternal, have here and follow the word of God, Repent, believe in Christ, call upon God, and are justified and sanctified. Okay, so let's pause there. Just keep a finger because obviously we're in the middle of this very lengthy paragraph. But to summarize heretofore, how do you know that before the foundation of the world, outside of time as it were, God has elected you? Well, you can't join him outside of time. You can't go and find the book of life that he penned before the foundation of the world. So how do you know? You know when God calls you in time and proclaims his gospel to you and administers his sacraments to you. So again, the calling of God in your life is not by accident. And that's what Chemnitz is saying. We can't take this as a joke or something like that, as chance or luck or all of these other sorts of fictions we operate with. God has aligned everything that you be called, and even when you've gone astray, called back, and this time and time and time again, making known to you the earnestness of his desire that you in particular would come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. That's God operating in time and space. So a very fair answer to this question of how do you know if you're elect would be, well, because I'm baptized. Now, what's going to be the immediate objection to that? Well, aren't there baptized people who aren't saved? Yes. But why? Because they rejected their baptism. What does that have to do with you? Has God baptized you? Yes. In baptism, has he claimed you as his own? Yes. Does he lie? No. So why would you ever get duped up into the devil's deceits and trickery and games of thinking just because other people have rejected their baptism, somehow baptism isn't a valid indicator that God has elected you? It's actually a bit of irrationalism there. A bit of deceitful twistedness that works itself into our hearts and minds to where we end up with the promise of God, the clear word of God, negated. Just Satan's trick. That's all he ever does. So, once more, if you are baptized in time, if you hear the calling of God, which is to say you hear the gospel preached, if you, re- if you are invited to his table, which is the invitation of the servants, come to the wedding feast, come to the divine service, partake of the feast of eternal life, the bread of life and the wine of eternal joy, then you know on that basis that God does not lie, that you are elect. Trust it. What's the alternative? There really isn't one. There's no big elevator that you can take up to the you know, library of Jesus Christ in the sky and go find the book of life and open it up and you know, find your last name. That's, so how do you know that you're elect? Because God makes you aware of it in time and in space. And why would you doubt that? Okay. Then where Chemnitz is starting to go here too is that there is a, a minor note in the scriptures and in, of course, the Lutheran confessions <clears throat> that one can see the fruit of that calling and the fruit of faith, the existence of faith itself and the fruit of faith in one's own life. So this is the normal standard course for us as Christians. You can notice, well, I wasn't a, I, I wasn't a Christian before, or now I am. Now, some of us have been born into the faith. Some of us have been born into the faith and lost the faith and come back to the faith. Okay, there's all kinds of everyone on the spectrum. 
But in a healthy Christian that's not under any spiritual affliction, attack, duress, there's no problem whatsoever being like, I want to go to church on Sunday. I love God. I recognize I don't love him perfectly. Obviously, whoever said that that was a possibility. But nonetheless, I feel this desire for God in my heart. It's just there. I hear the gospel of Christ Jesus, and I love him for who he is and what he's done. It's just facts. It's just things you feel in your heart. Nobody ever said it had to be perfect or completely genuine or that you need to do all this nonsense. We're all sinful. We're all tainted by everything, even our good works, even our best intentions. But nonetheless, those things exist. They're there. We shouldn't be embarrassed about it. You know, that, that kind of question after, that, that always goes along with the absolution, do you want to do better? Yes! <laughs> That's a fruit of the Spirit. So all of these new motivations in our hearts are miraculous. And we don't look to ourselves, we look to the Holy Spirit and say, that's proof that he's at work within me. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not self-righteousness. Now, so there is then um, not only an extra nose looking outside of ourselves at what God has said. Has he baptized me? Does he preach the gospel to me? Does he invite me to his supper, etc.? That's extra notes outside of us. And, and that's where the major note is. The minor note, so to speak, is the fruits of that faith and the new man within that is self-evident to us, unless, again, we're under some kind of acute spiritual attack where the devil can very frequently call that into question and try to force us into some sort of self-righteousness or despair. It's his usual M.O. And then sometimes it's best to just punt back to the extra nose and say, "That's eh, really, really, the question isn't, do I have genuine faith or not? The question is, Hath God said, and does he lie? No and no. Now, the irony of that is, of course, that's exactly what faith confesses. So if you're aware of that, you're aware of your own faith. You don't put faith in your faith. You put faith in Christ, but you can't help but be aware of the faith that nonetheless is there. So you've got this extra nose, but also this intranose, this inside of us, uh, change wrought by the Holy Spirit. And that's where Chemnitz has pivoted um, here in, you know, kind of roughly speaking from the top of 91 down to where we left off. Questions or comments on that before we continue? Okay, there's one. I'm reading uh, in Ephesians 1 uh, this, uh, this plan of God's which talks about a plan. God has a plan, mm-hmm. a mystery that's and if I want to ask you the question, uh, a lot of people that I run into, you know, they they look at God. Does God have a plan for my life? They shoot low. They they're they're thinking God has a plan. Who I marry, what career I go into, you know, etc. But here it's declared very clearly that you would we would all come to the knowledge and understanding of His Son Jesus Christ through faith. Mm-hmm. to be united in him mm-hmm. forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we see that as God's plan, and stop talking about these other miscellaneous things, we, we miss, we're missing the big picture, I think. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Exactly. And the big picture then frames all these other things and makes them less, than, uh, less idolatrous in our hearts and minds. So that you, for example, I think you brought up like who you marry or you know, this kind of thing or where you live or whatever else. Relative to the big picture, these things are incidental. Subordinate. Mm-hmm. Right. Subordinate. And that's helpful because that it cuts off at the knees any kind of idolatry we have toward wife, toward children, toward uh, circumstances, toward job, toward place we live. Like All of that's, by contrast, incidental. Now, once God's given us that gift, we can lean into these things as the temporal duties, as the earthly duties of this age in which we participate, and through which God blesses us, through good and bad. So then they gain their proper proportion, right? So the blessing and the duty, like when we talk about the table of duties in the small catechism, and vocation, vocatio, or calling of God into these stations in life. I mean, all of that's important, but as you are drawing out, it's quite incidental, quite subordinate, and almost of no consequence relative to the eternal call of God. 
I've got to look up the reference to this because I was reminded of it on Sunday when I was teaching and I need to refresh my mind. But the idea that one of the saints had, who knows, maybe it was Mother Teresa or something, I can't remember. But this idea that um, the worst, you know, that this life is at its worst just a bad night in a bad hotel. That sentiment. that, That is to say, from an eternal perspective, this life was the blink of an eye. And yeah, there was sleeplessness, and there were labors, and there were people making noise, and there's all kinds of obnoxious odors, and uh, you know you can't wait to be done with it. But and you had certain things you were trying to accomplish, and maybe to one degree or another those got done. But then you sort of wake up into eternity, and that's an important perspective. It's an important perspective because you know, so, Satan loves to tempt us with these illusions, like. This is what it's going to be for the rest of your life. Ah, that's forever. Who could tolerate this, that, or the other thing? Now, of course, the great secret is that no matter what it is you get rid of in your life because you, quote-unquote, can't tolerate it for the rest of your life, that vacuum is soon filled with something else. Okay, That's how Satan works. That's the great secret. So that if it's not this, it'd be something else. And if it's not that other thing, it'd be something further still. So that's the illusion and the lie, and the great strength of this is to realize then that you are where you are, be faithful, and this bad night in the bad hotel will be over soon enough, so endure, that's that frequent word used all throughout the New Testament, endure, and you'll see that it was worth it. And you'll kind of laugh at it, like even life's, even life's profound sorrows that just are so engrossing to us right now are nonetheless mitigated by that modifier. They are this life's sorrows. They are for only for a time. They have their finitude. Okay, so good things, uh, good things there flowing from Ephesians 1. Thank you for that, Barry. So picking back up where we left off then, it would be something like eight, seven or eight lines down from the top of 91. Picking up mid-paragraph, fairly well mid-thought. And though all these things in themselves are still tenuous and weak, so he's again referring to the effects of the word of God, repentance, belief in Christ, Etc., justification, sanctification, etc. So, although these things are still tenuous and weak, yet they, namely the converted, hunger and thirst after righteousness. So, again, the hungering and thirsting is itself indicative of the work of the Holy Spirit in you and the work of the Word of God upon you. And in this way, the Spirit of God bears witness to the elect that they are children of God. And though they do not know what they should pray for as they ought, the same Spirit makes intercession for them with groanings that cannot be uttered. Okay, we're paraphrasing Romans 8 here. Chemnitz has verses 16 and 26. But this is exactly the biblical thought, and it does appear here and elsewhere, It's kind of contrary to 20th century popular Lutheranism, which isn't genuine Lutheranism. And that's that the Spirit of God bears witness to the elect that they are children of God. That's the kind of reflection I was leading you through just a moment ago. That's the Spirit of God pointing out to you that you're not the same kind of person you would be if you were an unbeliever. Are we going to get like self-righteous about that and uppity about that? Of course not. Nor are we going to be bullied by that thought into denying the plain reality of what Scripture says, that the Spirit does bear witness within us that we are His, that we are children of God. Kenwitz continues, and he gives the very sweet comfort that God is so faithful that He wants to confirm, continue, and complete the good work in us. And a slew of verses there. Unless we turn ourselves away from him, Second Peter 2.21. And that's the key. Like God makes known to us what his will is toward us. The only way out is to turn ourselves away from him. 
consciously, resolutely. Hence, Paul also says, 2 Timothy 2.19, that this very thing is a sign to depart from iniquity and call upon the name of Christ. Again, that question, do you want to do better? Don't get confused here because the devil will try to push you into, okay, depart from iniquity and call upon the name of Christ. That means you need to be sinless. That's impossible. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So what does it mean then to depart from iniquity? That question once more, do you want to do better? (laughs) That's to depart from iniquity. To recognize it as sin and to steer away from it. And even in the case that you happen to fall into it over and over and over again, when you confess that sin, you are departing from it. You are saying, this is, I agree with the law that it is good. I do not want to do this evil thing. St. Paul himself in Romans 7 says, then it's no longer you who sin, but sin that dwells within you. It's a cancer. So you acknowledge this is a cancer and I want to be rid of it. That's what it means in essence to depart from iniquity and to call upon the name of Christ. Kenneth continues, hence we know for sure that none of the elect remains in final impenitence, as it is called, and unbelief. Therefore he that neither hears nor follows the voice of Christ, but persists in sins without repentance and does not seek to be reconciled with God in Christ through faith, who likewise does not obey the Holy Spirit but resists, let him neither think nor say that he is among the elect. John eight forty seven and 10, 26. Though one should not finally despair of the salvation of such a person, since God can call and convert him even at the sixth or ninth or even at the eleventh hour. All right, let's pause there. So, um, Beautiful statements here, and not at all statements that should be taken to the effect of, well, if you're elect, then you can do whatever you want to do and still be elect. That's not the teaching of scriptures. That's an abuse, an abuse of this doctrine. So, to not persist without repentance. What might that look like? That might look like, well, I know I'm elect, so I'm going to go on sinning that grace may abound. Someone says, hey, you know that this is a disaster, and you say, well, yeah, I know it's a disaster, but Jesus forgives me, I'm just a walking disaster. So, just, Which is one step toward, I'm not so sure it is a disaster. I, you know, God accepts me. He made me this way. Why, why can't you also? It's kind of judgmental of you. Maybe you don't get grace the way I get grace. Maybe you don't understand the gospel as deeply as I understand the gospel. It's what a hardened impenitence masquerading as Christianity looks like. Isn't, isn't that what Paul talks about, though, uh, saying, hey, uh, you know, he's going along and pray that... Uh, Satan take his life so that he doesn't go to that extreme. Isn't that one of the things Paul talks about? Like, yes. That his soul may be saved, that the body be destroyed because he's going in the wrong direction. Yeah, the impenitence of the sexually immoral man in 1 Corinthians 1.5. Uh, the Corinthians think they're, do, they're being super Christians and super experts in the gospel, really wonderfully gracious by keeping this man in the communion. And Paul says, you've lost your mind. Yeah. So he needs to be handed over to Satan. That is, again, you can see the binary nature. You're either with Christ or with Satan. He needs to be handed over to Satan publicly by the church so that he can see manifestly what he's already done in his soul. Right? And that he might come to repentance. Yeah. That he might be saved. That's the whole point of excommunication. That's the whole point of church discipline is that someone might wake up to their impenitence and be brought back into saving faith. What if that man said, you know, he saw St. Paul's letter and was like, oh my goodness, I don't know what I've been thinking. I'm definitely going to move out and stop sleeping with my 
stepmother, or whoever she was. I mean, we're talking about stuff pagans even know is wrong. Well, then, should such a man be forgiven? Yeah, absolutely, he should be forgiven. There seem to be hints and indications that in 2 Corinthians, that's exactly what's transpired. The man, through his excommunication, has come to his senses, repented of his sins, and Paul's saying, restore him now to the fellowship. I would just make a, a comment here. Um, one thing I really enjoy about the Lutheran faith, and probably most Lutherans take it for granted, perhaps, is the emphasis on um, law and gospel. Mm-hmm. And when, you, when we talk to someone, maybe a, a Christian who became lukewarm or begins to become indifferent, um, maybe enters into antitorianism, where that, the, those are the people which I learned my, for myself is that I, I, I need the law to, really, to continue to show me, hey, I continue to pause short. There's no you know, ifs and buts. I'm, I'm short. I'm sinning here. Mm-hmm. And to even dig out deeper parts of the gospel mm-hmm. and just to even realize the recognition that Christ died for all this, but yet Without the law, I couldn't appreciate mm-hmm. what, what he's done for me. Yeah, 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 exactly right. So, you know, the, the law is, in, the, in this sense, a standard of normalcy. It's, it's not that God says, okay, I'm going to create the law, I'm going to create the Ten Commandments or the natural law written into the human heart. I'm going to create this thing that's impossible for human beings to attain to, that's just arbitrary and uh, capricious, and set the bar, you know, at a 10. I'll create, I'll create human beings to be able to have a two-foot vertical, but I'm going to say you have to do a vertical jump over this 10-foot bar. That's not how God is with his law. The law written on the human heart that reflected in the Ten Commandments is just the standard of what it is to be human. That's how Adam and Eve were created. So it's not the law's fault. It's not that God's doing something arbitrary or capricious. He's just like, hey, this is what a human being is. Now, that we don't measure up to that standard shows how subhuman we've become in this sense and that we're not even human. We're not even meeting the bare standard. Jesus' parable to this effect, uh, do you remember how the servants, after they've done all things, he instructs them to say, we are worthless servants. We have only done what is our duty. Right, if you do the whole law, I mean, right now, the way we think about the law is kind of wrong. We think, like, if you do the whole law, you deserve a gold star. No, you don't. If you've done the whole law, you're just a human being. Just the way God made Adam and Eve. Now, it's glorious and it's wonderful, but you're not doing some work of supererogation, as the Roman Catholics would say. You're not going above and beyond. You're doing the bare minimum. You're only doing what is your duty. And so then, as we understand how fall short, or how short we fall of that standard and of that humanity, then what do we see when Christ becomes incarnate? He is the true man. And that true man unfolds. This is like the the verses about him learning obedience. The, The true humanity of Christ unfolds, and in this sense, matures into the fullness of obedience on the cross. Paul's admonition that we would have this mind in us, this mind in us also, the mind of Christ within us, um, who is faithful unto God despite the humiliation that inevitably comes. Okay, so the point being then, we see Christ as uh, fully human, and as with great ease and effortlessness, being innocent and good and kind and fulfilling the law without being legalistic without looking down his nose at sinners because those things are precluded by the law as well. (laughs) Precluded by what it means to be a human being as well. So Christ is the true human being then deigns to take our infirmities, our lack, our subhumanness upon himself and bear it on the cross in such a way that he says, I am a worm and not a man. That he is marred Yes, by our sins, and then by the scourging that comes on account of those sins, he is marred beyond what? Human semblance. 
so that as he is as the man, remember this pinnacle peak moment in John's gospel, in John's theology, where Pilate takes Christ out, and it's Christ not, you know, triumphant walking on water, it's not Christ shining on the Mount of Transfiguration, but it's Christ obedient, faithful, bloodied to an absolute unrecognizable pulp, crowned with thorns and wrapped in the robe of scorn and mockery that Pilate says, Hidu ha anthropos, or echi homo, or behold the man. So there is the man in the fullness of his maturity. And that's what we are all, that's the image, that's the man that we are being conformed into, which is the image of God and the likeness of God, chiefly Christ in this case. Okay, so we see then in the gospel, as John was pointing out, not only the wonderful comfort of the forgiveness of our sins, but the entire, entire renewal of our humanity, and then not merely the renewal of our humanity as if we go back to Adam and Eve. That's way too low. But the renewal of our humanity and then the maturation of our humanity into the image of the man, Christ. One who is faithful even unto death. One who, should God forsake him, nonetheless loves God with whole heart. Should neighbor crucify and torture him, nonetheless loves neighbor and prays on his behalf. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This is the project, then, of which the forgiveness of sins is, the, is a key, essential part. It's kind of like the beating heart that pumps the blood throughout the whole project, but the forgiveness of sins in and of itself is not the whole project. It's the mechanism by which the project is begun and continued in this life unto eternity. So great comfort we have there, then. Um, and, and this beautiful reflection that as we reflect on our own weaknesses, we simultaneously reflect on the strengths of Christ. As we reflect on our own weaknesses, we simultaneously reflect on what it is that Christ will elevate and raise us to, if at no other time than in the resurrection of our bodies on the last day. So all manner of fruitfulness can be had through this paradigm of law and gospel, as you mentioned. Okay, let's get to the end of this paragraph, lengthy as it has been. Okay, so from if you look on page 91 and you go to question 183, we're obviously still on 182. So if you jump up three lines, six lines, you'll find out where we left off. Therefore, let us never cease to exhort and admonish such through the word in the hope that perhaps God will give them repentance to acknowledge the truth that they may recover themselves from the snares of the devil, by whom they are held captive at his will. 2 Timothy 2.25-26 But he that perseveres in sins unto the end without repentance is certainly not elect, but is among the rejected and the damned. Okay, those are straightforward points, and points we've covered before. If you're in heaven, it's on account of God. If you're in hell, it's on account of you. I think there's this beautiful line that um, we encountered even before our commentary, that even when a person that we know is resisting the Holy Spirit, maybe they're in impenitent sin, we should continue to pray for them, knowing that God can call and convert even in the 6th, ninth, or 11th hour. And that's God's gracious will and God's faithful and loving pursuit. Then Chemnitz's final point stands in that light, that if people stubbornly resist even beyond that, then they've made their choice. But just because people make that choice, it doesn't in any way negate the uh, the calling of God upon you in this life. Because other people have rejected God doesn't mean that God's calling of you is to be rejected or is somehow suspect. Okay, that brings to a conclusion Chemnitz's very lengthy answer, very lengthy paragraph. 
to question 182. Let's jump into the question 183. But it is written that many are called, but few chosen. Many likewise receive the word with joy, who for a while indeed believe, but fall away in time of temptation. This is Jesus' own words in the parable of the sower, Luke 8.13. And it should put to bed this idea of once saved, always saved. And that would, that would mean that one can't have genuine faith and then fall away from that faith. So this, these are erroneous doctrines and are proven as such by Christ's little word here that they believe for a while and then fall away in time of temptation. So genuine faith, genuine falling away. Chemnitz continues, How then can the call and beginning of conversion be a sure sign by which God reveals the mystery of his will to us? Answer, the reason why not all who are called are chosen is not that... Did I get... There's too many negatives here. I'm going to just try this all over again and maybe I'll reconfuse myself. The reason why not all who are called are chosen is not this, that the sense and meaning of God calling us through the word is this, I indeed call you outwardly through the ministry to salvation and participation in my heavenly kingdom, but in truth I have something else in mind, (laughs) for I do not want all whom I call through the word to be enlightened and converted, but that most of them be condemned and perish, though in my word I profess something else, etc. (laughs) He's having fun with with what will be manifest as the Calvinistic position on these on this particular question. This idea that, well, if God called, but you didn't believe, then it's, it must mean that God didn't actually mean it. I don't know about you, but if my, if my wife were to say something to me, but not actually mean it, I might accuse her of deceit. Or if your husband said something to you, like he really intended to do this, hey, let's go out to dinner, but he didn't actually mean it, you might take that for deceit. And I think, obviously, if Calvinism were right on this point, that God, when he says he desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, there's a twinkle in his eye because he actually means that most of them be damned. That's deceit. Let's not accuse God of deceit, of saying one thing and meaning another. So, Chemnitz having a lot of fun here. Let's just pick back up with where we left off, three lines from the bottom of 91. Surely God himself earnestly abominates and condemns in us that kind of levity and wickedness by which we say one thing, but hide another in the heart. There's a scriptural reference as if you needed it. Nor can this be said that God does not call all to whom he sends his word. For God does not call without means but through the word preached and heard, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. And he himself exhorts through the ministers of the word that they be reconciled to God. And he wants repentance and remission of sins to be preached not only to a few, but to all nations and to the whole world. For the preaching of repentance and the promise of universal grace are to be set before all people everywhere. But scripture gives this as the reason why few are chosen, though many are called. And there's a colon, and you've got Matthew 23, 37, Acts 7, 51, and 13, 46. And Christ states this as plainly as possible in the parable parable Matthew 22 5 through 6 they that were called he says did not want to come but despised the word treated the servants shamefully and slew them so just think about the run through your mind real quick all the parables of Jesus where you've got the servants sent out to do some kind of invitation or to gather fruit or when is it ever said that the king before he does anything else, damns them or damns some of them to not coming. Never. The invitation is always genuine. It's always out there. It's always to all. Those who don't come are those who choose not to come. Yes, we've got a hand all the way up here in the front. 
back to some not coming to the twelfth hour. Um, yes. How do you? And I'm sure you've had experiences when you're sitting beside somebody, mm-hmm. and it is that last moment. Mm-hmm. And up until this time, you've said things in the past. Mm-hmm. How do we behave at those moments? That's a great question. It is a place in which, um, and, I'm, and I'm not trying to be exploitive at all here, but it's a place at which biblical theology, historical Christian theology, Lutheran theology shine. It's the deathbed and the particular circumstance you're bringing up. And it's where, all, it's where all aberrations, even though they kind of fly under the banner of the name Christendom, all other aberrations just show themselves and are revealed. Um, I've, I've had this happen uh, more than a handful of times where I'll get called to a hospital uh, room and a fam- the family will be there and there will be a general sense of spiritual concern, spiritual panic, worry, and fretfulness, because I'll just give a generic example, not a specific one to anything I experienced, but because dad had a stroke, he got rushed into the hospital, he's been non-responsive, and now he's at his end, and we never heard him elicit a confession of faith. We have no idea where he stands. The whole Assurance that this person's a Christian depends upon this person being able to make a statement to that effect. And there's no comfort without it, you see. And so this kind of theology which allows contingency in man is devoid of comfort and fails. And so, I mean, kind of heartbreaking on the one hand and just spiritually irritating on the other. Dad, Dad, please confess Christ. Please Give us some sign that you believe. All of that futile. And a microcosm for the larger picture of life, if we'll apply it. To the question then, what do I do as a pastor and what do we do individually as we're called to the deathbed? For those who either their faith is in question, oh, let me do the whole spectrum, whether their faith is pretty solid and it's evidence itself their whole life, but now they're not responsive, to the person where there's some degree of question, greater or lesser, to the person who we have little or no hope that they were actually a Christian before they arrived in this position. How do we speak? And the answer is, surprisingly, the same way to all three. So in that last hour, you speak the objective facts of the gospel. No subjective contingency. Now, if you believe, if you accept, if you change your life around, if you do any of this. No, no, no. All that stuff's always been nonsense and now is poignantly nonsense. You go in and you speak the truth and the objective reality of God's word to them. The objective reality of his calling. God has claimed you as his own. God forgives you your sins in Christ Jesus. Whoever receives him, will be saved. And that whoever means you. Okay? You speak those irrevocable promises of God because that's the means by which the Holy Spirit creates faith. Now, will faith be created in that heart where it was absent? I don't know. It's not my business to know. Paul says, I plant and Apollos waters, God gives the growth. Okay, We're just the farmers and we don't know if there will be a crop at the end of the season or not. But a farmer isn't called to produce a crop. A farmer is called to plant and water and pray. Well, that's what we're doing. It'll be up to God whether or not that's fruitful. But to state those objective facts and to entrust in our own hearts that if God could speak through the dead and decaying ears of Lazarus' corpse in such a way that he brings life, then why shouldn't I believe that his words can penetrate that comatose person sitting there on life support who appears to be irresponsive. That's less of an ask than a corpse sitting in a grave and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, and he comes forth. That's less of an ask to say, Heavenly Father, let your word penetrate their heart and create living faith in their soul. So if we believe the greater, why wouldn't we believe the possibility of the lesser? 
So I go into those circumstances all the same, and I go there to speak the objective truth and reality of God's love in Christ Jesus and God's uh, calling of this particular person. And even when they are deceased, finally, then my prayer is something like, uh, so this would be the case if, if, especially if you're thinking that their faith is doubtful, somehow in question, doubtful, or you have pretty good reason to believe um, that they may well have died in unbelief. Now, again, as Chemnitz even pointed out, you never know what God's working in the heart. So that's why I'm couching this with this kind of like soft language of don't know, don't think, don't have reason to believe, because we don't ultimately have certainty what God's doing in that person's heart and mind any more than we have the certainty of like what a person's dreaming when their eyes are closed, right? God could be doing whatever he wants. But what then is the prayer? The prayer is something to the effect of this. Heavenly Father, if it is at all possible to receive this person into your gracious care for all eternity, please do so. I know that you are good and I am not. I know that you are love and I am not. I know that you are innocence and blessedness and peace that passes understanding and I am not. That's it. And our whole comfort is that we're handing this person over into the hands of our gracious Father, who's better than we are in every way. If he's going to be wrathful, that's the right thing. If he's going to cast this person into eternal darkness, that's the right thing. If he's going to save this person, that's the right thing. He's God, I'm not. He's good, I'm not. <laughs> right? That, that's the whole rehearsal of those points. So just shorthand, Father, if you can receive this person into heaven, please do so. Amen. And then um, what do we do at the funeral if that uh, is the case? Well, we preach the gospel. We don't give people false hope. You don't want to say, hey, you too can be an unbeliever and uh, hope, that, hope that God will save you when you're on your deathbed in the last second of, of your life. That's really, really foolish. So that's not how we preach. We don't give false comfort. But even to those people, we give objective statements of the facts. We give objective statements of God's calling of this person. And we can, we can leave... Uh, absent what their particular response or lack of response was. But in some, t- in some cases, I've drawn that out and preached that as well, too. Because there are some Christian lives where the glory of their life is, that is particularly brilliant is God's gracious pursuit of them despite their efforts to the contrary. And the whole family knows that, and the friends know that, and everything else, and they're looking for comfort. Well, if we have comfort, it's in the faithfulness of God, not in the faithfulness of the deceased. So that's probably more of an answer than you wanted, but those, some well, thoughts to chew on. Yeah, and that's a fine diagnostic question. Um, are you ready to meet your maker? Are you ready to die? Are you ready to face Christ? Are you, uh, you know, those kinds of questions are fine, di- spiritually diagnostic questions. Yeah. Along with, are you able to pray? How are you praying? What are you saying? How are you processing this? How's your faith? All of those are fine diagnostic questions to ask because they just invite that reflection and invite an opportunity to say, well, I'm worried about this, or I'm worried about the other, or I'm doubtful about this, that, or the other. And those are... Uh, or, I mean, as, I've, as I had one uh, man say to me, and I said, um, I don't know exactly how I framed the question, but something to the effect of, it looks like death is imminent, are you prepared? To which he said, no. I don't want to go, and I'm not ready. <laughs> then some pastoral care ensued, obviously. Um, slightly breaks my heart as a pastor, because a lot of the pastoral offices, Vicar and I were reflecting on earlier this week, a lot of the pastoral offices preparing people for death and preparing people for the coming of Christ, right? You're preparing people for that moment. So when they arrive at that moment and they're completely caught off guard and completely not ready, you kind of feel like, well, this is a roll that's half-baked and need a little more time in the oven, uh, but given that that's the case and that's where the person has landed, then you do what you can to offer comfort and hope and speed up that process because it's inevitable whether they want it to come or not. It's here and upon them, and so now what? 
Okay, let's, uh, let's go just a little further then, if I can refine my place here. So somewhere on the top of 192, yes, talking about God's call, but Christ talking about how uh, they do not want to come, but despise the word. They treated the servants shamefully and slew them. So that puts us somewhere like three, six, nine, twelve lines down from the top of 92. But that it was not the will of God that they spurn the call that was brought to them and resist the Holy Spirit is gathered from this in that parable that the king was indignant that those who were called were unwilling to accept the grace that was offered. And this is the reason why such, though they are called, are nevertheless not chosen. Because they resist the Holy Spirit about to work salvation in them. For this is not the nature of divine predestination or election, that anyone should obtain salvation even if he do not hear the word of God or harden his heart against hearing the word. But those who have been predestined and chosen to salvation and life eternal, they hear the voice of Christ and follow him. John 10.27 And since the Holy Spirit wants to work and effect in them through the word the things that belong to their salvation, it is therefore the will of God that they do not reject, but receive and rightly use and piously exercise the workings, grace, and gifts of the Holy Spirit, especially since the Holy Spirit himself enables them to do this. But those who do not hear the voice of Christ, or do not follow when they hear it, but resist the Holy Spirit and persevere in such wickedness, it was pointed out in the preceding that they are not among the elect. Thus, indeed, many are called, but few chosen." because the minority of the called receive and follow that word. The reason for disobedience is not divine predestination, but the will of man, perverse and turned away from God. In obstinate wickedness, it is not willing to allow or suffer the working of the Holy Spirit through the word, but by impudent resistance, repulses and rejects it. All right, so Chemnitz just spelling out ground that we've already covered in brief and can be summarized again as followed, that even though it is not satisfying to fallen human reason, if you're in heaven, it's because God elected you before the foundation of the world. If you're in hell, it's because you resisted the calling of God. Is there a mystery there? Absolutely. There's a mystery in every article of the faith. There's difficulty in every article of the faith. The article of predestination is no different. But the great comfort we have is that when God does call you, he's calling you, and you, have, you should absolutely say, well, if he's calling me, if he's baptized me, if he preaches to me, if he invites me to his table, he's not lying. He's not deceitful. He doesn't know that I'm not elect. He doesn't know that I'm eternally reprobate and then invite me as if this is all some cruel charade. It's not how God is. If God is inviting me and calling me, then I must be elect because God does not lie. And again, if you say, well, other people have rejected, well, that's not any of your business, is it? (laughs) All right, let's finish up. Last paragraph from Chemnitz on this question. In the same way, many who began will, having fallen again, defect and fall from grace. Not because God denies them grace and the gift of perseverance, but because of their own will, they turn themselves from the holy commandment, 2 Peter 2. They insult the spirit of grace, Hebrews 10.29. They vex him, Isaiah 63.10, and grieve him, Ephesians 4.30. They adorn the house anew for Satan, Luke 
11.25, which is especially helpful because you've got the, the demon possessed and the demon is cast out and the house is swept clean, but nature abhors a vacuum and that's the way spiritual occupancy is, is as well. That house is either going to be possessed by the unholy spirit or by the sevenfold unholy fraternity, as it were, of unclean spirits. And so you're going to, your house is going to be possessed and dwelt in by Christ and his Holy Spirit or by the devils. Okay, just continuing on after the semicolon, and for them, the last state becomes worse than the first, and their damnation is just. Lots of scriptures there, and again, I will commend you to Article 2 of the Formula of Concord because there's just a huge, huge, huge list of scriptures that will support these two points, that if you're in heaven, it's God's, bis- it's God's doing. If you're in hell, it's your doing. And you'll see that this is not some like flippant position that's held on account of like one or two obscure verses. This is pages and pages, dozens of verses, uh, all lined up. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I just, I had, when I first encountered that Article 2 and this teaching um, in undergrad, I recognized right away that I didn't believe it and that I had just sort of in swimming in the waters of American evangelicalism and American spiritual piety had just, you know, assumed that free choice is the way and that's how God is just and all of this other stuff. And I was kind of incredulous, incredulous to be presented with the opposite opinion in the Formula of Concord, Article 2, on uh, free will. And yet then, as I was reading scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture after, and you just go, oh, (laughs) I should probably rethink my position. (laughs) And that's the exact thing that happened. And you start, you believe the word of God, and then later on you understand it, right? So... I understand that this, is, uh, this teaching of the scripture, as thoroughgoing as it is, is quite contrary to the American ethos and, and how we're, we're sort of born and bred to think, as it were. All right, well, we can, um, we can jump in. We won't get far, but we'll jump into the next question with the last three or four minutes here left in class. So question 80, 184 on the bottom of 92 what then is the true and proper use of this doctrine of predestination? And what is its fruit or usefulness? Paul declares that all scripture divinely inspired is profitable for doctrine, correction, instruction, and comfort. Since then also this doctrine is of scripture and founded in it, will surely also serve the same purpose. Now for the sake of teaching, these chief parts may be set forth for the uninstructed. One, this article excellently confirms the doctrine of free justification by faith, namely that we are justified and saved without our works and merits, freely through grace for Christ's sake. How do you know? What's his point? Can you make the case? Can you finish the point? How does, how does election wonderfully accord with justification? Yes, right. So God justifies us apart from our works, and God elects us before the foundation of the world, before we were born or did anything. Exactly right. Picking back up with Chemnitz, for before we were born, in fact, before the foundation of the world, or foundations of the world were laid, before this world began, when we were still nothing, much less could do anything good, we were predestined and chosen to salvation according to God's purpose on the basis of grace in Christ not on the basis of works, or according to our works. As Paul strongly emphasizes that matter, Romans 9.11, following 2 Timothy 1.8-9. One more article, or uh, point two. This article overturns all the opinions by which something is ascribed to the natural powers of our will in spiritual things and actions. For God, before the times of this world, in his eternal counsel, decreed that he himself wanted to effect and work in us, through his spirit, all the things that belong to our conversion. And man, without this working of God, 
and left to himself, is per se and of himself, with all the powers of his natural will, in the spiritual things that concern our conversion, nothing but enmity against God. Romans 8, 7. And I think that, yeah, Genesis 6, 5. Okay, well, we will uh, flesh out points 3, 4, 5, and 6 next week. We've got one final question there, 185, and then we are through the doctrine of election and on to good works or the new obedience. The Lord be with you.